Welcome to episode eight of the On The Way podcast, uh, a podcast dedicated to a compassionate, non-dualistic Christian faith. My name is Dom Fay, and I'm joined uh, on this episode by Reverend Sue Wilton. Good to have you back, Sue. Good to be here, Dom. And, um, you know, we were having a meeting about the podcast and we decided we needed more cool accents from yes. our guests. We had Martin Percy last time from the UK, and today we've got a, an accent in the form of Brennan McCagg, who... Mm. Uh, Joins us, a non-violence peace activist for 30 years and uh, and a bit of a leader in the area. Thank you for joining us today, Brendan. You're very welcome. Thanks for the invitation, both of you. Um, now, today we are going to be, I guess, discussing a non-violent approach to, to living into faith um, and to conflict resolution in general. And it is obviously quite topical at the moment, uh, seeing as there do seem to be news stories every day of what's happening with North Korea and, you know, the possible threat of this uh, this oncoming nuclear war, if that ever does occur. Um, it does seem we are living in a world where violence is so deeply embedded, Brendan. Uh, how central a problem is this to, I guess, to human existence in 2017? Oh, it goes back a long way, Dom. Um, the concept of uh, violence is one that uh, is deeply embedded in our in our primal instincts uh, from the need to survive and the capacity to join together with others who also need to survive. It was much easier to survive in packs than it was to survive as individuals. Um, so in that respect, it, it is deeply embedded in our, in our primal instinct and also then in our cultural instinct, our cultural mores, rules, rituals became, uh, became uh, part of that belonging, tribalism, and one of the things that we needed to do uh, to maintain our tribal uh, cohesion was to appease the unknown and the mystery of uncertainty, the angry gods, and often the way of doing that was by making a sacrifice, and mm. in the early days of human sacrifice, um, that's what we did in order to restore the order of the tribe and the faith that next year's harvest would come and that the the animals would return. The gods were angry when they didn't, so we uh, we often had to sacrifice, usually an innocent victim, to appease angry gods. That and over over time became an animal sacrifice, um, and then ritual symbolic sacrifices. <coughs> but we still have deep within us this capacity to think that by sacrificing someone, particularly one who is to blame for things that go wrong, that we will restore order in our community, in our families, in our nation, or in the world. So it's pretty universal and it's pretty deep. Uh, in a program that you used to be involved in, I did find a, a great quote about, I, I suppose, where violence in the world is at. It says, um, unfortunately, conflicts often do not end when violence is used. They generally continue to smolder or escalate. A violence feeds on itself and cannot be extinguished. There is always residual resentment and injustice. What's our society's answer to this spiral of violence? More violence. From this point of view, being human means becoming chronically suspicious of a world populated with real and potential enemies where unresolved anger and hurt are forever mounting. So if, if violence is at the core of the majority of the problems we face... What is the alternative? What is this third way you speak about, I guess, uh, you know, framing what we're going to talk about today? What, what's a, an introduction to the, the non-violent okay. approach? Well, I wouldn't so much say as it's violence is at the core. It's more the, the what precedes violence, which is the notion of dualistic thinking, uh, othering, scapegoating, demonizing. The process, as I see it, uh, in an anthropological sense, as outlined in the work of René Girard, is that... Um, the, when when we have um, uh, scarcity in our world, um, we tend to uh, have um, escalating conflict over limited or scarce resources. If resources were plentiful, we wouldn't have as much conflict. It's when we start to desire the same things that are limited supply that people start to fight with each other uh, over them. So uh, they, this mimetic, as Gerard calls it, mimetic desire, which is imitating the desires of others, uh, creates, creates conflict and creates uh, rivalry. Then what we do is we start to demonize our rivals. We, we, we call them the enemy. Um, 
And so we demonize them and we stereotype them and we scapegoat them because we think that they're a threat to, to us. That legitimizes the violence that we then do to them in order to protect ourselves. So the process is one of dehumanizing that leads to legitimizing the violence and the destruction of people and societies, e economies, cultures, even religions of others who are not like us. Um, so in, in the, the universality of that, um, Jesus entered into a, a culture that was heavily hierarchical and heavily believed that uh, God, Yahweh, would strike down their enemies and that any problems that happened internally could be resolved by uh, the ritual of scapegoating someone in the tribe or in the village or in the family and once you got rid of them then God would be happy and be on your side. So Jesus was aware of this and he presented an alternative way. Well, so it's interesting, before we do get too in-depth into this alternative way, um, we've discussed uh, at length on the podcast that you have made your way through a few Christian traditions. Um, and it, it would be fair to say that the the world that Brendan just described Jesus coming into of one which thought God was on their side and against mm -hmm. their enemies and mm -hmm. which thought that, that, you know, God had his own select group and was against some others. That's a, an idea that is still very alive and well some 2,000 years after Jesus was here. Yeah, it, it's, it's ironic, isn't it, it that we have um, Jesus who comes to break down boundaries and seems to be always pushing past the boundaries to go to those who were on the outer, and yet we end up in back with a, an understanding of, of God where there are the ins and the outs, mm. and, and we uh, create, again, another form of tribalism. And Jesus did not come to create another form of tribalism. Jesus came to end all tribalism. Um, and yet we, we seem so stuck in that position sometimes. The, the process that Jesus embarked in, as you say, Sue, was like to make, to build his grassroots support at the margins. And while he was doing that, he didn't constitute much of a threat to the authorities because he was operating in the, the villages and out in the countryside where he was building up a grassroots support and a, a, a groundswell of people who who became disciples and who became his followers. But he still wasn't a threat to the two dominant powers of his culture, the Pharisees, uh, the, the, the Jewish re religious le leaders and the Pharisees and the Romans. So it, it didn't matter too much what he did out there. And um, in doing so, he was continuously breaking taboos. He was continuously breaking the rules. He was continuously challenging people and inviting people to come and see what the kingdom of God, as he called it, was about, which meant, which was really about equality and that in God's eyes, everyone was equal and that there was no, uh, it was a, a really quite, quite um, a struggle to uh, to overcome this concept in the culture about judging who was in and out and who was who was your enemy and who wasn't and he, he kept saying you know uh, the rain will fall on the good and the bad and the like please don't try and judge who's in and who's out let leave that to God and just get on with loving each other as I have loved you and the good Samaritan story about who this love expands to so he kept building this story this narrative alternative narrative to this very rigid patriarchal hierarchical society of the rules and regulations and that was how you got redemption and salvation and um, he he knew that by continually threatening the systems the domination systems he was going to end up in all sorts of trouble and he deliberately and intentionally then started to make his way from the margins to the center uh, knowing that he would be escalate the threat to those who had a lot to lose from changing the way things work done around there. The uh, definition of nonviolence I found, Brendan, uh, just described it as the desire for an action on behalf of the well-being of all, um, not of my family, not of you know, my, my, my race, um, my sports team, whatever it is, but, but of all. Um, yet we do live in a, in a deeply divided world, um, and it does seem that the, 
the barriers, the divides are just getting uh, bigger and, and stronger every single day at the moment. Yeah. Um, what, what do you think is making this world more divided currently? Is it, do people just go to that direction when they're more scared? or? It's a sort of default position deeply embedded. We don't have to scratch very deeply to find people going back to their tribal ways of thinking. Um, I was born and grew up in a culture that was deeply divided. And... Um, deeply divided meant that you only trusted your own people because it was a matter of potentially life or death about who you engaged with and who you spoke to and how, not just that but what you said and how you spoke so um, <clears throat> when those two primal instincts are threatened in us either individually personally or as society or institutionally those tw what I refer to as the twin primal instincts for survival and belonging, it will do all sorts of amazing things in order to survive and in order to fit in. So it, people who sort of can manipulate thinking, and we have quite a few of those around in our circles uh, of media and circles of politicians and so on and marketing, who know how to manipulate people's thinking, they don't, you don't have to do too much to manipulate people's fear through that their survival is under threat, whether that's physical survival or identity survival, um, or uh, tell them that they're not part of this, that's all Australian, you know, that's a, a particular, a, a regular dog whistle that's used that's on Australian, well, what does that mean? But it threatens people's sense of belonging. I, what do I, what must I do to belong? Mm. How must I wear my baseball cap? What's, uh, who must I support? Um, and so survival and belonging can be triggered very quickly, particularly in escalation of war and nuclear threat and terrorism and so on. And uh, that's when people get frightened and go back to default. I will have a better chance of survival if I know where I belong and I stick with my tribe. On episode four of the podcast, so you and I were joined by uh, Dave Andrews and Nora Ameth, and um, and Nora spoke about her experience as an Islamic woman of being the scapegoat of, of I guess, being the target of a lot of violence, general violence out there. Mm. Um, and on a, on a somewhat similar level, you've spoken at, at length before as well about being part of churches where, you know, being a woman who wanted to lead was not <laughs> was not the the default position, was not the accepted position. Um, it does seem that, that largely the church is causing as much pain in this, the, the way of violence as, as anything at the moment. I, I wonder if I'd go that far. I, I, I think that the, the church is often in history the best and the worst. You mm. know, I think religion has the capacity to create great violence and also has the capacity to create amazing good um, and amazing peace. Uh, and we've struggled all through history um, with both ends of that spectrum, I think. And, and I, I've certainly encountered, um, you know, I can point to the best and the worst in, in my life, but I think you, you keep on pursuing because ultimately the, the, you can anything that, you know, because it's a very, uh, people are very passionate uh, about their religious faith. And if, um, if we get it wrong, that passion can become terribly misdirected and become culturally identified with that same tribalism, mm. you know, and it just gets generated in the same old human patterns of, you know, we protect our belonging in the same way we, you know, we, we oppose the other. Um, or if you really look to Jesus, then you can take the much more dangerous, less safe feeling step of stepping outside all the tribalisms, you know, mm. and trying to, to follow Jesus beyond those tribalisms uh, in, into a world where we don't have, we, where there is abundance, where we don't have to spat with one another and, and protect our own and fight for a scarcity of resources, in fact, and particularly, of course, the great resource is love and belonging, and that God actually offers us an abundance of love and belonging for all, and it's not something that we have to compete for, and it's not even something we earn. So when you have, have religion that, that does that, then that breaks open and we get a command like from Jesus to love our enemies, which, you know, uh, I, I think we forget how radical that is. Mm. Uh, and if we can, you know, so, so I think, you know, if we can hold on, recognize that, yes, there has been potential for, there can, for great violence within religion when it has not been... Um, when it has become just culturally identified and identified with the same old patterns of, of human behaviour, but else we can actually break out of all those systems of, of circles of meaning as Jesus did and, and, and really ruptured the whole system and said, actually, there is enough for all. We can go out and we can love our enemies. 
I mean, I've noticed within myself a tendency, even just with the, the question I asked before, and I think it is a risk that once you break out of, I guess, a, a religious a context that you might have grown up in, like I did, that all you can do is just change jerseys to the other team and mm. you, you're still bought into the, the, the patterns of hate and scapegoating and excluding. Mm. But now instead of excluding the minorities with the fundamentalist Christians, now you're scapegoating and excluding the fundamentalist Christians. So oh, yeah, we just, we just switch around. Yeah. We, uh, but the fact is we always need somebody to scapegoat to make us feel better and safer. And just taking on Sue's point there, uh, Modern psychology and psychological thinking, and particularly Jung's concept of the shadow, is helping us understand the depth, the profound depth of what Jesus meant by loving your enemies. It's not about their salvation. It's not about loving your enemies so they can become like us, which is a very egocentric, Mm -hmm. agenda-driven concept. Mm -hmm. Let's love our enemies so they can join our tribe. It's not about that. It's not about their salvation. So it's not about recruiting them to us. It's not about helping them to receive salvation. It's actually for our redemption Mm, mm. that loving your enemies is such a profoundly challenging yet spiritual invitation to do because our enemies actually point to us all of the things that we refuse to accept about ourselves. So it's easy to project it out onto the enemy. They're terrible. They're evil. They're they're brutal. They're arrogant. They're greedy. They're violent. They're abusive. And think that it doesn't exist within ourselves. The same things exist within us. Gandhi had this wonderful way of saying that unless I recognize that the the evil that I see in my enemy also exists within me and that the good that I know is within me also exists within my enemy, I have no chance of maintaining a commitment to nonviolence. So it's the oneness of us all. There is no other. The enemy helps us actually see the bits of ourselves that we have refused to acknowledge and actually become aware of and transform. So loving our enemies is about our salvation, not theirs. Very mm. clever, this guy, mm. Jesus. Was. He was so clever. And I think, uh, I think sometimes uh, 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 we, we can think of this in the large abstract terms. We think of loving our enemies as specifically maybe meaning loving those of a, a different race, a different religion, whatever it might be, uh, in, in a broader sense. Whereas I think often the, the harder challenge is to love the person who has personally hurt you. How to love the person who really let you down or betrayed you. And, um, you know, you, how, how to not feel that sense within you that you feel you would be happy if their life went poorly. <laughs> you know, how do you actually, how do you confront that within yourself? Because I know, I, I read online that you said that, that woundedness is the, is the instigator of most violence out there, personal woundedness. So how do you confront, when you're feeling that, that betrayal, that hurt at somebody else, how do you confront that in a non-violent way and actually transform it into love? How, how do you, what are some practical ways to do that? I'm glad you asked that question. It's a great question. There, because really it helps make the distinction and draws some dots between personal, interpersonal, intercommunity, international legitimation and justification for violence they're all connected Mm. and Pope Francis's statement makes it very clear violence starts within the human heart so unless I begin to see that I uh, um, how how can I engage and love the enemy within myself that we're, we're not just a singular self there are numerous little voices competing for space, airspace inside my psyche and inside my soul. There's a voice that says, uh, Brendan, uh, that guy's out to get you. Be, be careful. Like it's a little, I call a little guardian angel on my shoulder that is the product of 25 years growing up in Northern Ireland that always seeks to help me identify if someone walks in this room from Northern Ireland, that little voice is saying, one of them or one of us, check it out, make sure you know. Because that little voice was uh, contributing to my survival in the first 25 years of my life. Mm -hmm. So I created a, a set of cues or a set of signals that helped me 
in my survival by identifying who was who on the in my outer world. Now I still have that little voice, and so I don't expel that little voice and say, "Get out of here! Don't need you now." But I say to that little voice, "Thank you for that information, but I don't. Uh, it's no longer needed. But maybe I need to give you a little." I'm going to cuddle outside somewhere. It's okay. But thank you for alerting me to that fact. So there's parts of us. We, we My colleague, George Tripp, Dr. George Tripp in, in Perth, has created this, uh, teaches this wonderful inner way of recognizing the, the multitudinous parts of ourselves and by saying part of me. Part of me is very angry at the injustice I see. Part of me is very frightened about the future of this planet and the the way the rapidly escalate, uh, rapid escalation of, of violent tendencies and warfare and so on. Part of me is very grateful for being around. Part of me is very loving towards my neighbor. Part of me just wants to, my neighbor to go away so I can have a rest. That inside me, there is a whole village of competing voices. And some of them are at odds with each other and con- and contradict each other at times. You haven't got enough money. You've got plenty of money. What do you need money for? And so these two voices can have this little internal struggle. So that's the first part that I need to understand and recognize and have a capacity to work with the enemy within myself. Once I've done that, it's a lot easier to be compassionate towards those people outside who would seek to hurt, insult, or harm me. Now, we have a whole suite of skills and strategies and ways of doing that. Well, we did did chat before the podcast about delving into individual spiritual practices, I guess, is the way to, to reconcile all the different voices within yourself and all the wounds, all the hurt. Um, so maybe as a way of moving into that, can you talk about, uh, I guess, how that's been uh, helpful to your life? Mm. I, I think what has grown with me has been an awareness that I, I think unless um, I can find more contemplative practices, I, I can't help go anywhere near resolving some of what Brendan's talking about with the, with the different selves. You know, the, the capacity to actually love parts of myself that I would rather not even see, that I would rather shut away and pretend aren't there so I can keep maintain a, a facade of, oh, I've got this stuff together, you know, and, and the, the things that would say to me, oh, that's, not, that's not a very good part of you you're not a good person for thinking that you know instead of that you open yourself up to it and be actually able to in the silence allow God to love all parts of you and to bring them to the fore so that you don't have a series of closed doors within yourself that you can actually just allow them to come up and we don't need to hide them from God you know we can just be ourselves and when we can first allow the love and grace of God to to meet us as we are, not some facade of who we'd like to be, but just as we are, then we have a chance to see another as they are and accept them as they are. So, but without um, time, and it's it's very slow. Without time spent in silence with myself, where I can, you know, I think there's we live in a very noisy world, you know, and there's a very distracted and busy world. And it's so easy to flee from yourself in some of that busyness, in performance, in perfectionism, um, and in you know. And while you are doing that, the, um, the the awareness of yourself recedes, and and your capacity of God to just to let to meet you as you are, not as who you aspire to be, is it's not possible. So being able to let go of perfectionism and spend time in silence with yourself and with God are the growing creative spaces, I think, for that. I know that you do lead the meditation group mm-hmm. here uh, at the Cathedral, Sue, and it is a big part of, mm-hmm. I guess, your life and, and your spiritual journey. Um, was that always the way that, that meditation, that, that contemplation, that these things were big, uh, I guess, helps to you? Or, or have these been tools you've discovered along the journey? Oh, yeah, definitely tools along the journey. Uh, I think there's you, you, your understanding of prayer. My understanding of prayer has changed dramatically over the years. You know, prayer is you know it moves from being your your set of requests that you you put out in into the ether and hoping God is going to respond is nothing like the prayer life that I have now. You know, I, I think a lot of time is spent uh, in in gratitude, um, as well as just in in a silence where 
you can we all have well I, I think I particularly have the monkey mind problem where you, your brain is throwing a thousand thoughts you know just too fast and so many distractions and to find a free space away from that and that's what meditation does of course we use just a mantra and just being able to return to that in the stillness um, and be fully present in that moment um, is is a very powerful practice for transformation I've found. So Brendan if somebody came to you and said um, let's say my partner cheated on me two years ago we broke up and I have spent the past two years hating them and I don't want to hate them anymore I feel so exhausted I feel so bitter I feel so weary I guess we're talking about total forgiveness actual forgiveness not the forgiveness that means you can have an amicable conversation on the sidewalk if you run into them but actual complete forgiveness what would your advice to them be of, of, I guess, how you can start that process of letting that violence and that anger go and start the, the, the true forgiveness? Forgiveness is a huge part of the cycle, a suite of skills required for sustaining nonviolent living because it has to do with compassion and understanding for self as well as for the other and the humanity of, of everyone. Um, forgiveness is, is about releasing myself from an event or relationship or a, a traumatic experience that I've had from continuing to have that imprison me and and halt stop me from being who I truly and fully am. Um, I love the work of the Tutus on this, Desmond and Faux Tutu, uh, the Book of Forgiving, where they, they actually, uh, that's probably what I would say here, have a read at this book, um, because it, it really is, it is a, it's a wonderful book uh, in, in providing um, a, a a ritual, a set of rituals around being able to um, create an intention. First thing is that create an intention, make a choice whether you wish to forgive or not. It is your choice. Uh, or you wish to enter a cycle of retaliation, revenge, and holding on to the hurt of the past, or go another way, which is to release and let go. So the, the, uh, having made the choice to to go through the cycle of forgiving, then the, the next thing is to actually tell the story of what happened. This is based on, on the truth and reconciliation process and restorative practices. So you've got to name the story. And if, the, even, if that is to yourself, to really declare the story and name the hurt in the story, how was I hurt? What hurt me? What, why am I feeling so still after, in your scenario, after two years or whatever it is, but... Maybe for some people it's fairly recent or it could be for 20 years that they've held a sense of never being able to forgive someone else. So tell the story, name the hurt, then ask for or provide forgiveness. Sometimes if you're the one who needs to ask for forgiveness, if you have hurt someone else, or provide forgiveness for another person, even though they might not, in in the world's eyes, uh, deserve it or maybe they're not even sorry for what they've done it's not their call if you choose to forgive them that's your call for yourself to let that go and then uh, the, the two, in the tutu cycle the fourth the fifth part of that process is absolutely wonderful because it means that you can either renew or release the relationship forgiveness doesn't mean reconciliation and it doesn't necessarily mean restoration um, it's you have then a choice about either releasing the relationship and going off your different ways or renewing the relationship seven times 70, if that's the case for some people it might be. And I think that's sort of, it, it really is important that we, I think that we understand that, that forgiving someone doesn't necessarily mean reconciliation and it doesn't necessarily mean re restoration. In some cases with restorative practices, um, why would you want to restore a relationship that's pretty broken anyway and pretty toxic or contaminated or destructive? You you might not want to restore it. Everything might need to change before any renewing is possible and sometimes the release needs to happen before that. So it, it does sound then like, I guess, those individual spiritual practices really are the key to unlocking non-violence yeah. and, and, yeah. and the only way to, yeah. to go on that journey of forgiveness, to go on that journey of of finding another way, of finding the alternate way. 
I, I think that too. I think it's important with forgiveness. I come a, across a lot of people who um, are really trying so hard to forgive that they don't own their own feelings on it. And sometimes we leap in too fast or, or we put guilt on ourselves for not forgiving too fa- too much. And I think owning owning your anger, owning that resentment, the you know, the, the feelings that are there because we we give too much power to feelings when we try to suppress them. You mm. know, and they become quite dominating in our psyche, I think. They just take over our lives. They'll keep bubbling up when we're not expecting. And sometimes the Christian church has been guilty of trying to force forgiveness or, you know, tell someone to forgive when they've come, they've they've suffered some terrible atrocity. And we haven't, we may have told them to forgive, but we haven't grieved with them. We haven't helped them um, to, to deal with the trauma or what has happened. So I think it's just important with forgiveness to make sure that we, uh, sometimes it might be just about saying, I think Brendan said entering the cycle of forgiveness, just about saying, look, God, I want to forgive, I can't right now. You know, mm-hmm. and just staying with that feeling and allowing the the um, the fact that it's not concluded to, to, to live in the tension of that for some time, but knowing that God loves us regardless. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I think that I think that's so important to uh, accept and acknowledge and validate one's own place in that cycle. And it's a bit like you know, I have an intention to be able to forgive, but I'm not ready yet. Yeah. It's okay. Mm. So it's, it's it's I guess forgiving yourself for not being ready to forgive somebody else. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's total acceptance. You, you're so right that the. I think what we're learning much more in in terms of activism to transform the world is around the fact that there's a connection between our inner work and our outer work. Because for so long, uh, activists have been trying to simply change the world to the way they think it should be, which is strategic, what we call secular and strategic nonviolence. and, and so a lot of people use it that way because uh, I want to change the world to how I think it should be and I'm using nonviolence to do it, which is, is, there's nothing wrong with that, but just to recognize it's not the whole story, that's not the, non, that's not the spiritual nonviolence that is based on agape love, as Martin Luther King Jr. called it, where it's a, we operate from a love as God loves in everyone, including myself, and it's all being done, and it's all there. We don't, we don't even earn it. We don't need to. So we can live in that moment, mm-hmm. recognizing that we are all human beings with our feelings and flaws and file-ups, and that we have an understanding that we're all in this, and that if I point my finger at my enemy and say, that person is arrogant or ruthless or violent or abusive, I need to turn that finger around and point it at myself and say, where does that show up in me? Or have I suppressed it and buried it and denied it? Mm-hmm. Or do I go home and kick the cat because I can't deal or confront? James Baldwin is a wonderful saying, not everything that is confronted can be resolved, but nothing will be resolved until it's confronted. Mm-hmm. So how do we confront injustice um, and violence non-violently is the question uh, of how we learn skills and we can learn new skills to do that and if we're and particularly staying connected to our inner and, and I think you mentioned um, restorative practices there. I think there is forgiveness is is incredibly hard, but gee, there's some things that we can do to help people along the way as 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 a community of Christ. And I, I've been involved in restorative practices in schools, and there you see, if you, if I've had situations where you've had a child being or a teenager being bullied on Facebook. Terrible, you know, annihilation of character um, by a group of students who had the power of the group as well and both sides of that were you know spitting hatred at one another and could never forgive but it's amazing if we take the time to sit them in the room with care with skill and training you know and we sit in the room and we tell the story so that we really hear one another and really see one another then it's amazing what can just fall how hatred can disappear how enemies can actually recognize in the other someone like them and they can see, and, and so often you would hear the response in different situations that I, different conversations I'd been in where they'd go, I didn't know, you know, I didn't know that you couldn't sleep all night or I didn't know that it was that hard for you to come to school the next day. I had no idea what I did, did that, and I am so sorry. Mm. And it's amazing how forgiveness can just flow over through that when that situation is created. 
I find also, Brendan, there's a, as well as this violence externally, there's a lot of internal violence. There's a lot of people who beat up on themselves, who there's a lot of self-loathing. There's a lot of, I'm not good enough. I'm worthless. There's, there's just, a, I guess, a lot of self-hatred going on as well as hatred of others. Um, and I suppose you would say those two are, are quite inherently linked, that those who hate themselves probably the most are probably those who will hate others the most as a result. Yeah, I think so. Um, Richard Rohr has a wonderful saying about um, the, that sort of sense um, of those issues about ourselves. If if the violence within us uh, or the, the sense of conflict within us is not transformed, it's transferred. Mm. So unless we transform this enemy within and our capacity to love ourselves then we trans we're always looking for scapegoats out there to project it onto so it's again coming back to the importance of the inner work and the capacity to recognize how do we create different spaces this is i think the key uh, that the people of the way going back to some things that you said earlier they for the first early followers of jesus were not called christians they were referred to as the way people followers of the way the way of nonviolence was what identified clearly people who followed jesus and it wasn't really until christianity became the one of the formal recognized religions of the roman empire that christians were actually allowed to carry weapons, but not to defend themselves, interestingly enough, to defend the state, not not self-defense. So we sort of lost the whole connection with the Beatitudes and love, loving your enemy side once we sort of bought the principalities and powers and, and then just war theory. So again, that was based on the capacity to defend the state or even the big others, but not, not self. So um, once we've learned how to recognize our interconnectedness and our, and our common humanity, then the, the way is about learning new ways other than state, the, the ways that we've grown up in this survival and um, belonging dominant system to say, is there another way? And I think Christian churches who are, particularly in the words of Pope Francis, if they're serious about following the way of Jesus, then it is about embracing his teachings and his witness and his modeling of nonviolence. How do we create different spaces other than these polarizing, dualistic, simplistic us and them divisions, yes or marriage equality, yes or no, mm. black and white, forcing people into making profoundly complex questions, very simplistic. Um, and uh, and one of, uh, uh, there's an Anglican priest in, in, in Perth, Stuart Fenner, who's just done a wonderful example of how to do that by inviting people to come to a circle of conversation around this rather than sort of trying to set up this polarizing arguments where if, if we're right, you must be wrong, or if we win, you must lose. These are the sorts of things that create resentment, residual violence that's sitting around and people will say, I'll get you back for that or you'll keep or whatever, and it's buried there. Uh, and we just never get to a, a, a higher sense of common good. Mm. So we can create new meeting processes, circle work, restorative practices, uh, in inviting people to bring the complexity of situations into discussion, learning to listen to understand the view of another rather than listen to convert the other to my view is quite a difficult skill for people who whose identity might be threatened by the fact that they, they could be wrong, you know. And one of the great questions that they asked in this group over in Perth was, uh, what not just what are the issues for you, that was one question, but the second question was, what personal experiences have you had that have led you to holding this position? So it's an opportunity in a circle to create a movement from head to heart, which often is uh, the way that spirit moves can get in, can get into to, to us and into circles. I think that that question is a really good one. I think thinking about the, what are the hopes and fears we bring to this place, you know, to this and to this discussion and to this issue. Um, and I think for me, the personal challenge at the moment in Australia is seeing um, 
how hurt a lot of my LGBTIQ friends are become are in this debate. How, mm. how the, the personal hurt, and then my reaction, I get angry, and you know, and I then go to the otherizing, and and the you know, someone someone once said that that wherever you you draw a line. To separate you from the other, you unfortunately always find Jesus on the other side, you know, and I think that's a nice lesson and I have to sit there with that and go, well, how does this, that Jesus loving our enemies, not, not, you know, Jesus never allows me to say, to write anyone off. To say, right, they are out. I mean, I know, I know that's othering, but there's also a tendency we, we have to just say, well, I'm not going to worry about them at all. I'm going to just push them mm. beyond my group, you know, which is the same old tribalism. But in this debate, it's, it's really hard when you're talking about hurt people mm. um, and you see the response and you see how deeply wounding some of the debates are becoming. Um, so, so how do we, I think, the, what are our hopes and fears here? is a question that takes us away from the issue. You get nowhere, honestly, if people come in with, with a very clear understanding that they're right or that they are the holder of all truth. We all have to let go of, of that I'm the sole possessor of truth position. Mm. But if you come together and say, what are my hopes and fears here? What are your hopes and fears? We have a starting point from our humanity. And I think there, and it's okay. The Anglican tradition is a beautiful tradition for being able to to carry a, a great weight of diversity of opinion and beliefs about different things. And I think we need to hang on to that strongly and recognise that like a piece of music, we, we, may not, um, we, we may not get closure, but maybe we could finish this song with some harmony, even though we're all in different places. And I guess that does raise one of the key questions that we, uh, I guess, do face when you, you feel so compelled from a social justice point of view for a minority, for for the plight of a group of people, how do you how do you work with that? How do you achieve change on that without just yelling back? You know, without just buying into the same old dualistic, violent back and forth. How how can you actually achieve meaningful change by taking the third way? And I think that's um, if we look at again the modelling of Jesus. Uh, I remember Richard Rohr quoting Bonaventure um, saying that Jesus was crucified on the collision of opposites. That that cruciform position is the collision of opposites. Mm. And he and he also mentioned that, you know, if you follow this way, you know, birds have their nests and foxes have their dens, but the son of humanity has no place to lay his head. So we're continuously needing to find this other space that breaks the cycle of us and them. Finding our tribe, the non-tribe tribe, is is quite difficult and quite hard to, to remain in it, to stay committed to it. But this is what I think we're called to do and find prototype ways explore ways of doing this. So it's not about not having a, a, a sense that injustice is happening or if this is unfair or that's not right it's how the presence that we bring to engaging with it will be different if we bring a presence to it that is based on contemplative and prayer and and meditation and a sense that god is in all of this not just the bits i select where god is and god isn't and that one of the tasks that we can have is do what others find more difficult and not many people invest time, energy or resources to doing it, which is to create this other space, this third space outside the us and them space, Mm -hmm. to create open spaces where people in communities can come together and address that question themselves. How do we want to get along better together? Mm -hmm. Um, We have applied these linear rational methodologies to fixing people's problems for them and they haven't worked and they are not sustainable. It creates winners and losers and creates a legacy of terrorism in generations to follow. It doesn't work. We must find ways of enabling people to speak openly and honestly with each other and collaborate towards a better future, even if the only thing they can agree on to start with is something has to change. Something has to change. We don't know what it is, but leave your guns at the door and enter the circle and let's explore how we do that. I think that the Christian Church um, has a a wonderful history of 
being at the forefront of when we talk about justice you know, issues like Jesus was never never one to back away from even escalating conflict sometimes where justice was concerned, you know. And if we look at more in, in more recent times, the, the anti-slavery movement, the, the, the Christian church led change there. And, and we need to find ways that we can stand, that we can move forward um, on, on issues and yet as Brendan said, we're, we're, it's the way that we're doing it. It's, it's going forward with a deep spirituality, mm. um, with a determination not to otherwise or not to dehumanise anyone else, but to actually try to see the commonality we all share through this. I mean, the civil rights movement in America, like it came about because both two factors. One, I think that there was that deep spirituality that was a part of the movement, part and parcel of the movement, but also because there was training and reflection and an intentional action for how do we transform society. I suppose as, as tempting sometimes as the call to just get a nice house in the bush and meditate every day and live removed from it all might seem, that's not really the call, at least not for everybody. There, there has to be a transformation within the world, within the context we're currently living in. Yeah, look, I, I, it's not for me to say who it's for and who it's not for. And I mean, I think there is a, a wonderful gift that the contemplative can offer by way of energy and prayer uh, to the parts of the world that are suffering. Um, and I think, I, I believe that, that that is the power of prayer, uh, that you do not have to necessarily be engaged on the streets or in non-violent direct action or protest marches or whatever to necessarily be participating in the transformation of the world. At the, the same time, I think that, you know, the, the combination of action and contemplation is very good. If it, uh, and But who's to say that uh, dedicating an hour of silence every day to pray for intentionally the suffering in the world is also not an action mm. that is nonviolent and making a difference. So um, there are many ways of doing this, Dom. And I think, again, uh, I use the work, uh, based, uh, based some of my framing on the work of Joanna Macy uh, on the concept of the great turning, that um, there are five different just nominating five different ways to be engaged in activism to help in the turning of our planet at this time is as we move away from a, an individualistic, independent uh, nation statehood into a more global, interconnected, interdependent worldview and connection that there are some obviously who want to turn the clock back. And some who saying you're not moving fast enough, far mm. enough, fast enough. So in this great turning, this notion of turning, uh, as a, as another one of the great revolutions on our planet, um, we you know we had the agrarian revolution, we've had the industrial revolution, and now we have this this uh, eco evolutionary sort of sense of we're all interconnected. That there is a, a need for people to be prophetic, standing on the mountaintops and saying that's wrong, that's unjust. There is a need for that. Not everybody's called to do it, and in it of itself is not going to change anything, but it needs to bring awareness. A second form of activism is a more pastoral activism where we heal the wounds of the victims of the current system that sucks. You know, we go to hospitals, we go to prisons, we we work with refugees and asylum seekers. There's a pastoral requirement to bring to bring that comfort to those who suffer. That's needed. It's not going to change the world by its in and of itself. The third form of activism is what I call the prototyper, who's saying, well, that sucks. What else can we offer? Let's try something different. The pioneers of new systems, the people who will go out and, and create housing cooperatives, who will get into solar and, uh, and organics, and who will look at new ways of, of trying to create structures and, and have uh, more egalitarian um, processes to engage people in collective wisdom. We need, we desperately need people to go out and try new things, but they alone aren't going to also change. A fourth way is what I call the partnering way, which is where people who will say, well, we need to partner with the, those who are other, those who are different, not expel them or exclude them from this process. The more we do that, the more we alienate them. Mm -hmm. So we need people who are going to actually create these conversations with the enemy or with the other. And in the fifth 
The fifth space is for a space for presence. How are you going to be as you engage in the great turning? Is it going to be you're wrong, we're right? The sooner you realize that and get on board and be like us, the better we'll be. Or is it one of, we're all in this together. We have all come to this place through a journey of life and life circumstances and cultural background and religious beliefs that have led me to believe, for example, that I am doing the very best in this world by protecting Australians from terrorism and that stopping the boats is the best and fairest thing I can do to help those hundreds of thousands of refugees who are sitting there taking their turn in refugee camps and who are waiting properly to get into Australia and by stopping the boats we are stopping uh, people who have belief systems that may be very different from our own but who genuinely believe that what they're doing is right and, and noble. Mm. Now, those what we get when we get those five different forms of activism in the old paradigm is we compete with each other. Well, you're visiting the sick in the hospital. You're not really out on the streets with us trying to stop the, um, you know, the, the, the Adani, which is what we need to be doing, stopping coal. So we actually fragment and fracture our efforts by actually competing with each other for to recruit people to the particular part of activism that we feel most comfortable with as distinct from saying thank you for doing what you're doing it's wonderful that you're doing it we need people to stand up there on the streets and point to the injustice that's occurring and do the research and get the data and tell us what's going on and we need people to prototype and pioneer new ways so that we can learn what not to do and learn how to and so on so this is all part of a cohesive whole around helping us change to a new paradigm before we haven't got much time left (laughs) or much choice (laughs) so uh I think it would be helpful because we are introducing here, for many people, I imagine introducing a new way of being, a new way of living. It is a different approach to the advance yourself, um, you know, find your tribe, uh, large parts of, of, I guess, um, the way people do live. So if if there are people listening to this who are are new to the concept of nonviolence, who um, find this call quite compelling and are hearing this and thinking, this makes so much sense, where do I start? Where do I start confronting the anger within me? Where do I start confronting why I'm projecting so much hatred and division? What What is the best place to begin? Well, I, I would imagine there'd be a little community of practice somewhere here in Brisbane that people could we, we come along and join. Yeah, <laughs> maybe one at the cathedral. So I think I think not to do it on, on in isolation from others. I think to do it in community would be the place to start. Find a meditation group? Well, meditation group, um, a, a, a collaborative learning group around... A, because uh, that's the thing about this, Tom. There is no... It's not... It's not like learning how to use Facebook or Twitter or Microsoft or uh, this. You can't teach people how to do this. This Mm. is the thing. People can learn how to do it, but because it is such a profound shift for some people, some people will do it bit by bit, evolve into it. Others will just have an amazing sort of epiphany and sort of say, that's it. Um, This is what I'm going to do. I think it is most helpful if you can do it in community with others, uh, either as a community practice or a learning group. Let's learn more about this. How do we do that? Um, And we can learn together using resources that we have available, such as resources that Pachabeni in Australia have available, or um, Love Makes a Way is another resource group that people can join. you know, learn from and and have conversations with and engage with. So that would be my my sort of initial response. Find a group locally and sit down and have a yarn and and commit to learning more. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Christianity is a team sport, and and following the way of Christ is definitely something that is only. I mean, Jesus modelled it. Jesus, the first thing he's doing is getting a, a group of people around him. Uh, we, we can't do it on our own. And I'm always suspicious, I must say, of people who say, "Ah, oh, but you know, I, I I find God in the outdoors." Now, that's very true. It's true for me too. But you know, that's my God, and God is bigger than church. Well, sometimes that is. Um, 
there, there's a whole lot of reasons for that, but it can be that community is hard work. Mm. And, you know, part of this actually living out the way begins with the interactions you have with the people around you. And being in church is hard work sometimes. Being in community can be really hard work because you actually have to work through living day to day with people and um, really see and, – and, and, you know – the Christian church is, is the whole point is that we gather all sorts of different people, you know, from different walks of life with different points of view. And we have to find a way um, in this arc together to get along. Mm. And um, it's actually the best. It's like the stone rolling down the river. It, it rubs the sharp edges off you. And we need to be in community. We need one another um, to, to work through this. I'm actually just preparing for a sermon on Sunday that's in um, Matthew's Gospel it's an interesting little text that has the, the parable lost, well, well, something like Matthew's version of the parable of the, the one sheep that's gone astray and the, you, and the 99 others and why you go off and how you know, find the one sheep and bring them back. But the very next part is actually about what happens if you're in conflict with someone, if your neighbour sins against you, what you, you bring them in. And, and that's actually a message for Matthew's church. They're, they're saying you can't just, if, you, if one wanders off, you don't just leave them go. You don't just cut them loose. You know, you go and find them back and restore them. And if, if someone, if you're in a conflict with someone or if someone's hurt you, then you go and you speak to them face to face. It's a bit of a blueprint for how we do community there. And I think that, that all speaks to how we, we need our life together to be true and authentic, meaning dealing with the difficult stuff and our nonviolent practice. We can have all aspirations about being nonviolent, but if you're not with other people, mm. it's actually quite easy. You know, you can go off and generally, generally going for a walk down down to the beach or across, you know, in a forest doesn't actually mean that I'm challenged to great actions of nonviolence. It, nonviolence starts in our hearts when we're with one another and finding ways to, to live and to see the other and to allow other people to change me is is at the heart of our community life. Words attributed to Gandhi was that uh, it's it's pretty easy to be nonviolent with people who are nonviolent. <laughs> it's a different story retaining your commitment to nonviolence with people who are quite violent. So we we can only do that in community mm-hmm. with we have a sustainable community of people to support us and nurture us and where we can practice and we can sit and speak openly about our own capacities for violence where you know I'm ask any one of my kids about the violence that I perpetrated on them over the years and I'm just as guilty as anybody else for why you know losing it losing mm-hmm. my cool and then so you know it uh, Alain Richard from Pachibeni in the US that I f- first met and introduced me to this stuff, he, he sort of said, well, look, just because I, I preach about or talk about or support or promote nonviolence doesn't mean I'm nonviolent. That's the thing we must remember. I'm as capable of violence as anyone else. Mm. And and the only time I'll be completely nonviolent is about probably 15 minutes after I'm dead, you know, when I stop, <laughs> stop twitching around. So we acknowledge with humility, our own capacity to do the exact things that we're pointing our finger at our enemies if our life story, our life journey to here had been different and we hadn't met who we'd met or read what we'd read or learned what we'd learned, we could be just as capable Mm -hmm. of doing some of the things that are absolute atrocities that we see on our TV screens every night. So we begin with that and then we support each other in trying it and we create a space where it's okay to come back and say, God, I was in this shopping center today and this woman's in an hour and I was where it's okay to actually say, I I feel that too. And and so how we then develop the skills of responding to that. We have five skills, foundational, fundamental, the skill of noticing yourself when you're getting ready for battle. Your body will tell you and won't lie to you when you're getting ready to fight or flight. Your body will respond to that uh, stimulation outside. How do you then center yourself in a hurry in a matter of a split second before the adre- you know, that adrenaline kicks in and the reptilian brain takes over and it's a fight or flight mechanism? And how, uh, how could you center yourself? In that moment, what are some some ways you could do that? Well, a simple way you can have like like I carry within my pocket what I call a peace pebble. 
mm. um, which is um, it, you just put your hand in your pocket and touch your your peace pebble, which is in my pocket yes. in here. I have it, this little bag. So you know that's a very simple, tangible way that breaks the circuit mm. of going. I'm getting frightened here, or I'm going to attack. Mm. Um, you can have a mantra that you, you that you that you call on that can be as simple as God, God be with me. God is in this. Um, it can be someone who, who inspires you to be, want to be more peaceful. If it's Gandhi or Jesus or Aung San Suu Kyi or your, your, your grandmother who has taught you how to be peaceful, you can invite their spirit to be with you in a special way in this moment of higher escalating tension. So you can have physical and you can have uh, verbal and you can have prayerful ways of doing that. Then you commit yourself to wanting to understand why this person wishes to hurt you. And that could be a listening exercise. It could be a, an acknowledgement, a validation exercise around, you're really angry. I can see you're really upset at me. I want to know why. And so you actually commit yourself to listening to understand why this person is in this state at this moment and and when you have actually acknowledged that and tried to understand it and they actually see or feel that you understand it then you can might say well here i want to speak my truth now i'm feeling really frightened and anxious or uh, upset or whatever it is again acknowledging my own feelings and speak your own truth and then be open to another truth emerging that is different from your truth and my truth, that something in that exchange can happen or not. That's not necessarily our call, otherwise we get back into manipulating outcomes. But it's a sense of in that moment of grace or in that moment of spirit that something can transform this conflict, this anger, this potentially destructive act that can just be repeated and recycled time and time again. They're very fi five very simple skill sets. Can that you just run through the five again? So just to recap them. <coughs> so first. Pay attention to your body. Yep. Notice, observe your body. Where Where's the pain point? Where is it, where is it movement? Is it in, in your sweaty palms? Is it in your voice? Are you getting lower, getting louder? Is it in your gut? Is it in your head, your headaches, your back of your neck? What is it in your body that's telling you that you're getting ready now for a, a higher escalated peril in your life in response to either somebody walking around the corner with a knife, a baseball bat, or just yelling at you or screaming at you. That, that There's a whole range of contextual situations. Once you, you pay attention to your body, you center. And that can be as simple as putting your feet firmly on the ground and, and inviting the spirit to be with you. Touching a peace pebble, if you have one in your pocket, or any part of you, it could be a ring or a cross you're wearing, that helps to bring you outside of the inner fear that's driving you, that sort of inner and outer connection. Could be a mantra, simple two words, three words, whatever. Then you commit to being open to understanding why the this person is out to get you. Now, in some situations, your step three is turning and running because <laughs> <laughs> if you've got three people under the influence of alcohol or drugs running at you with a baseball bat, you're hardly likely to want to understand <laughs> what they're trying to do. So again, being aware of context. Um, so you make a commitment to trying to understand why, uh, why this person is in conflict with you. Then when you've done that and, and communicated that to them, then you speak your own truth which is, here's how I see this situation, or here's my view, or here's how I'm feeling now. And then out of that process, you are then open to a bigger truth emerging, which may or may not change. It may be that you still hold your truth, and this other person still holds theirs, and you agree to disagree. But you've both maybe increased a level of <coughs> respect in your relationship by going through that process. It may be that you can't resolve the conflict. Not everything that is confronted can be resolved. Maybe you say, let's have a break. 
maybe uh, we can't resolve this in ourselves. Maybe we'll ask Sue to come and help us work this out next week. Maybe I need to find a new job. Maybe I, you, you need to find a new job. Uh, but that's an emergent outcome from committing yourself to a process of engaging. And uh, one of my mentors way back, a, a Uniting Church minister called Neville Watson, reminded me of the quote that our call as Christians is not necessarily to be successful. It's to be faithful. So this, these, these don't always work. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's the thing. They don't have to work. If we are in it, in our presence, knowing that it's all being taken care of, that God loves me, God loves you, and it's that sense of uh, expanding our own circle of protection to include the other. It may start with having a commitment to protect myself from the danger. The more that we do this, the more that we learn how to do it, and the more we engage with it, the better at it we become, and the, ex the more we can expand that circle to include our enemy and the other in it. Because God, I, as Richard Rohr said, as either God's in it all or not at all. You can't pick and choose. God's here but not there. Well, this has been a, an amazing, enlightening conversation, Brendan and Sue. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure thank to have you, you on the podcast. Gora Mayogat, which in my language means thank you. Gora Mila Mayogat, thank you very much. And I uh, thank you, Sue. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Brendan. Wonderful time. Thank to you, talk. Sue. Yes, and we'll be back with another episode of the On The Way podcast shortly.